0: Jesus said that his sheep know his voice and they follow him. And so we as his sheep do not follow the voice of a stranger. We know the kind of life that Jesus led. We're reminded each week of the death and the sacrifice that he gave for us. And so when we hear his voice and, when we, call and we hear his call to obedience, It should, in fact, delight us to hear his voice and to hear his call upon our lives. And I hope this morning that we are reminded of that. I hope as we look at some very important aspects of what God is doing amongst his people in the book of Exodus, we come across this idea of obedience and God's people obeying his word. I'm going to see this morning important truths related to trusting in God, to following him, to receiving his blessing, and around the covenant and living for his glory. And so if you've got a a Bible open there, we're going to have a look at some sections from chapter 23 and also from chapter 24, if we have time. In these chapters, we see that God is the one who gives his people victory, God's voice is to be obeyed. God is the one providing blessing for his people. He's the one making the covenant. He's the one that's sealing the covenant. And his people are to respond in worship. Worship forever, forever. Because he's the God who rescues and redeems. And his people are to trust and obey him. So we're going to see this morning really two aspects here. We're going to see that there is a conquest promised, that there's a future that God has in mind for his people. He's been intimately involved in every aspect of their rescue, and he's speaking to them now. We're speaking to them through the prophet Moses and even directly to them. But it's not just the past that God has in his hand. It is also the future. God has rescued his people to give them a future. And he's going to talk about that as the people are to be led into this promised land, this land of Canaan, this conquest and the conquest of this land. And the second thing we're going to see is that God confirms his covenant with his people, he reminds them of the promises that he is making. And also, that they are going to make in response. So, firstly, we're going to see the conquest promised. That's in Exodus chapter 23. And it begins by God explaining that He's going to send an angel. If you have a look there in Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. God says, I am sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. God has rescued his people, but now here, he's giving them a future, a hope. And indeed, that's what we have as Christian people. God has rescued us in the Lord Jesus, but as he has rescued us, he has given us a hope of the future as well, a new place for us to look forward to. Many people are fascinated with angels. Quite a number of uh, new TV series around angels in the last 20 years. We see angels appear in books and movies and TV shows, and yet there are a number of misconceptions that people have around angels. And it's important that when when we kind of see angels appear in the Bible, that what we do is we we take our meaning and what angels are from the Bible, and not just import from what we may have seen. In popular media we need to understand the role and character of angels from God's perspective in Scripture because the angel in Exodus chapter 23 it's mentioned there in verse 20 was a warrior angel it's a warrior angel because there are battles that God's people are going to be involved in. And so when we imagine God's promise of an angel, it's not some plump, uh, cherub-like thing with pretty wings and lounging around with a harp on a cloud. This angel is quite different from the cartoonish picture. Psalm 91 verse 11 says, God will give his angels orders concerning you to protect you in all your ways. And so this is an angel of protection, an angel who is bringing protection through military conquest and so it's not a delicate baby-like thing it's a majestic warrior angel and many uh, Christian thinkers have tried to kind of identify this particular angel um, some there's probably around five kinds of um, most likely possibilities for who this angel is here in verse twenty. It could be the glory cloud. It could be a reference to the glory cloud. That the Israelites were led by night and day, but that cloud isn't a you know animated object. But the angel here is described as uh, living and moving and speaking. Uh, some people think that the angel is just a metaphor for guidance, but It doesn't seem to be simply a metaphor in this text. Other people think it it could be a a human messenger. Um, Some people even speculate that it could be Moses. But I, I don't think that's likely because the text says there in verse 21 that God's name was in him. And some people think it could be the angel, the actual angel, perhaps, an actual angel, sorry, perhaps Michael, the archangel. Um, And this is probably likely in my mind. The angel could also be uh, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. The, The description there in verse 21 that God's name is in him fits well here, but along along with him having the authority to forgive sins, however, if it was the Lord Jesus uh, here, which it could be, then why would it be referred to why would he be referred to as an angel? And so we're not actually sure who this angel is, but it does remind us of Christ, one who goes out before his people, one who will protect his people. As God's people move into the land of Canaan, there is going to be opposition. But this angel is going to make a way for them. And it reminds us what the Lord Jesus has done for us. That as we live our lives, there is much opposition. There's much opposition of evil forces. As much as forces of evil within us. And so the Lord Jesus is... The Lord Jesus is the one who goes before us. Because just as the angel for God's people is a guardian and a guide, the Lord Jesus for us is a guardian and a guide. Like the angel, Jesus speaks with authority and a message of God. Like the angel, Jesus bears the name of God. He is, as we heard from our second reading, the image of the invisible God. And so... This is a wonderful reminder for us as Christian people that as God has promised to his people here in Exodus 20 and as we see the Exodus narrative unfold and as the books of the Bible unfold and as God's people move out of Sinai and into the Promised Land there is one going before them. And we too, as we move through life to our ultimate better place, to our new Jerusalem. There was one going before us, and this is no angel. It's the Lord Jesus. And so it means that I think there are three things that we can be reminded of this morning, that we can trust in God's victory, that we can obey his commands, and that we can receive his blessing. You see, in um, chapter 23, notice how often... God uses the language of I. He's sending an angel. Uh, There is one who God is sending. But if you look there in verses 20, 22, 23, 27, and 31, it's I, the Lord, who is sending this angel. I will wipe them out, I will be an enemy to your enemies. The victory that God's people are going to be given was one that God was going to give them. God would work on behalf of his people to bring about his purposes for their lives. Um, You'll notice there in verse 28 that he even promises, I can't quite understand this, but he will send the hornet ahead of you. He will send the bees ahead of you. Uh, I don't know if, uh, has anyone got a bee phobia? No? A couple, uh, some children I know, that I think one or two of them have a bee phobia. The bee comes anywhere near them and they run the other way. It's absolutely chaotic if a bee is near one child that I know quite well. This is, um, well, here in verse 28, this is the picture that... As God's people move into the land of Canaan, as those occupants see God's people move in, it's going to be chaos for them. They're going to be running about, flapping about, scared, panicked, and running for cover. This is what God is doing. God God has rescued his people, but he hasn't rescued them and left them to their own devices, no, God is like their security detail. God is like their bouncer as they're moving in, as they are to move into this promised land, into this land inhabited by um, the parasites, Canaanites, the Jebusites. God, the all-powerful Creator and Sustainer, is the one who will go into battle for them. And so too for us. So too for us. Often we are concerned by what's before us. But we must be reminded this morning that as we trust in the Lord Jesus, as he is the one who guides and protects us, he is the one who has ultimately fought the battle for us. And therefore, if God has won the ultimate battle, the spiritual battle in the heavenly realms, then we can rest assured that he will be with us in our smaller battles, in the little things of life, in the things that get us down. God is not apart from those things. God is very much involved in those things in our lives. And this doesn't mean that we are simply passive observers in life. What it means, if God... He's with us, and he is fighting. It means that we don't fight alone. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 reminds us that we're not passive, that we are to be watchful, that we are to pray, that we are to apply God's word to our lives, to be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. So we're to trust in God's victory. Secondly, we're to obey his commands. God promises that he will give his people victory. And what are the Israelites to do here in chapter 23? Well, they're not just to sit back and watch, to be spectators and simply to enjoy the blessing. What God expected of his people was for them to hear his voice and to obey him. You notice the instructions there in verse 21. They're to be attentive to him and listen to his voice. It goes on, they're not to defy him because he will not forgive your acts of rebellion for my name is in him. But if you will carefully obey him and do everything I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. God has made two essential demands on the Israelites. Firstly, there in verse 24, as we saw last week in the Ten Commandments, but it's repeated here as God prepares his people to move into the promised land. In verse 24, they are forbidden to worship the gods of the Canaanites. God told them to destroy the idols and the sacred stones. In the second half there of verse 24. So it's a reminder to us as well that there is... Uh, there are idols that can compromise our worship and we too ought to do everything that we can to distance ourselves from sin and the idols that are often in our hearts. God demanded exclusive obedience from his people here in Exodus 23. And we have forgiven people in the Lord Jesus and that is a great and wonderful comfort. But our Lord, the Lord Jesus, demands exclusive obedience of us as well. And so we ought to remember. We ought to remember this, that we often, I think, are sometimes tempted to be comfortable in our forgiveness and forget that the Lord Jesus has a claim on our lives. He is our Lord. If we, can check, if we confess Jesus as Lord, He is the one who calls the shots in our lives. He is the one whose voice we listen to and he is the one whom we obey. Thirdly, we're to remember God's victory, we're to obey his commands, but we're also to receive his blessing. See there in verse 25, in the second section there in verse 25, God promises to bless his people as his people serve him. How is the Lord going to do it for Israel? Well, he promises to provide. He promises to provide plenty of food and water, good health, large families, long life, and most of all God promises here to God promises this land, this place that God is taking them to that will be their inheritance. And there is a word of caution here that we ought to be reminded of. Because these promises that God gave to his people were for a, a specific people, at a specific time, for a specific purpose. So God's promise to provide and protect his chosen people um, is important for us. But this doesn't mean that you know, it's, it's some kind of formula, that if we simply obey the Ten Commandments, then we'll never starve we'll have lots of children, we'll live a long life, we'll never get sick. That's not the promise here for us. We know that Jesus suffered, and he promised his followers that they would not only suffer, but they would be hated in John chapter 15, verse 18. We're on this journey, and God has promised to be with us in this journey But suffering will not end until we are in this new place, this place that God has prepared for us. And when we do, when we do get there, there will be no hunger. There will be no more suffering and no more mourning, As John reminds us in Revelation chapter 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have passed away. I think that's the fulfillment of this promise ultimately for his people. That our moment for which everything will be right is when we are safe and we are home with the Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. God gave his people a promise, a specific promise, for at a specific time, for a specific purpose, and it was a good promise. But with the new covenant, those who have faith in the Lord Jesus, we have an even better promise. We have a better promise than what we see here in Exodus chapter 23. We have this land, this home, where we will fit perfectly and where the Lord Jesus will be. And so are we ready for that? Do we long for that? Reminded of that this morning. Secondly, we see in this passage that the covenant is confirmed. We see that in Exodus chapter 24. If you want to turn over the page there, um, we see that God confirms his promises to his people. This happens in chapters 24. In chapters 20 to 23, God lays out the terms of this covenant, of this contract that he's going to enter in. And chapter 24 really tells us how it would be what was to be confirmed. Exodus 24, as we saw two weeks ago, is really the goal of the Ten Commandments. This is what God is taking his people to. He wants them to obey him. He's taking them to a new land, a place where they will have victory, a place of milk and honey, a place of much provision, a place of great well-being for them. But the purpose of this, the purpose of their obedience, the purpose of the Ten Commandments is that they might be in fellowship with Him, that they might know His blessing, that they might respond in worship. And we see uh, there that God had chosen a mediator between Himself and the Israelites. This mediator represented the people before God. He went between a holy God. And a sinful people. He was the only one permitted to draw near. In this, God taught his people to honour and respect his holiness. And we're too reminded this morning that as we gather here, we gather to draw near to God. But we don't gather in fear. We gather to draw near and to be in his presence Because he has made a way possible for us. He's appointed a mediator. Back in Exodus chapter 24, it was Moses and the priests. But now for us as Christian people, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul writes to Timothy, Jesus is the one mediator between God and humanity. And God set the terms for this covenant. The people affirm the covenant there in verses 3 and 7. They promise to do all that he had said. Moses told all the people the commands and the ordinances that God had given. The commands obviously refer to the Ten Commandments. And the ordinances probably refer to those chapters 21 to 23. Where all the details of the expression of those Ten Commandments are found And then there in verse 7, there is this covenant scroll. And after hearing the commands and ordinances, the people unanimously agreed to keep them, to be obedient. And they did this a second time, after Moses had written it down in verse 4 and read them aloud. So this covenant is doubly confirmed. It's doubly confirmed. It's in addition to the promise that they made back in chapter 19, verse 8. So why did they do it twice? Well, the first time they did it was to understand and accept it. They declared their intent. But the second time here, second time was so that they could promise to obey it. Not just understand it, but to obey it. This is not foreign to us. That's often what happens in a wedding. Um, the two people declare their intent when they say, I will. And secondly, then they say their vows. So, in the case of the Israelites, their obedience didn't last long. Moses stepped away for a few days, and as we'll see in the coming weeks, they immediately disobeyed. We see also in this section that there's an important element. There's this building of an altar. After writing down the words, Moses comes to build this altar for the covenant was to be sealed with blood. The altar was to be used for burnt offerings and a sacrificial peace offering. With a burnt offering, the whole animal is consumed by fire. But with a peace offering, the animal was not consumed by fire. Instead, the meat was grilled. It was like a barbecue, if you like, and eaten after the blood had been drained. This is where the blood comes from there in verses 6 and 7. The blood is sprinkled um, on the altar, and that was to represent God's blood as his part in this covenant. He was one party to this covenant. And the other portion of blood that Moses put in bowls was to sprinkling on the people. As a sign that the people were involved. So here is God making his promise His people responding to that promise in this ceremony. And we are told in the book of Hebrews that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This covenant was made in the shedding of blood. And since the fall, blood has been the basis of man's relationship with God in terms of sin and forgiveness. Without the blood, there can be no access to God because there is no forgiveness for sin. This is the idea of the blood of the covenant, which we said last week as we um, shared that meal of Holy Communion. Hebrews chapter 9 provides this just incredible description of this idea. We see the confirmation that Jesus ushered in a new covenant through the shedding of his blood. This new covenant is seen and expressed as we... Partake in the Lord's Supper. And when Moses told the people that the words of the Lords of the Lord were were sorry, that they responded twice in unity, they say there in verse three, we will do and obey everything that the Lord has commanded. And so this morning, as we hear and we are reminded of this new covenant, we have an opportunity to reaffirm our pledge of obedience to the God who has saved us, to the one who holds the universe by his power yet has shed his blood for us. It's a powerful statement that the Lord Jesus has shed his blood for us. And so this, this morning we're reminded that we're to dwell on this, that we're to cherish the fact that Christ has poured his blood for us, that he's ushered a new covenant that this new covenant is a covenant between God himself and us, his people. And it's sealed with his blood. And it gives us reason to celebrate. It gives us reason to celebrate with inexpressible joy because our king, the Lord Jesus, has gone before us. He's protecting us. He's our security detail. And he's the one who has paid our ransom. And so might we be obedient people, obedient to him, out of thankfulness for him and for his glory. Amen. I'm going to stand and sing.